Let's pray together. Father, we do praise You because You are worthy of our praise. We praise the God from whom all blessings flow. Lord, as Esther reminded us that we are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you go through various trials. James reminds us of that in his letter to the churches. Lord, he also tells us shortly thereafter that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so, Father, we have so many reasons for which to praise our God from whom all blessings flow. Lord, in one of those we ask, uh, we praise you now for is your word that has led, informed, been spoken directly. God, we pray now as is studied that you would open our hearts' eyes to see the truths that they contain, which we believe reveal you to us, the creator revealed to his creation, so that we might know who you are. Father, we don't come to an understanding of of your reality based on our abilities. We begin by your revelation. And for this, we give you thanks. For otherwise, God, we would be left and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Rather, we turn to a word that doesn't change. And Lord, I ask that your spirit that inspired these words would guide our time now as we move forward. Father, would you guard error from my lips? Would you remove distraction from our minds? Might we encounter, experience the God of the Bible in ways that lead us to give thanks for all that you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, when Melinda and I first married, I had a job without our alma mater. And I was working in the Office of Admissions for our university, and I was responsible for our Northwest recruiting region. So this area included Northwest Arkansas, as well as Oklahoma, and the entire state of Missouri. We really didn't go much beyond the bordering states just because of our school size. It just didn't make any sense to send a guy out further west when the likelihood of any students coming from there to study was next to zero. And those who did were so committed such that a visit by myself or any of our other admissions representatives was just wholly unnecessary. And thus, every year in the fall for two years, much like politicians, I stumped. I went out on the campaign trail. I'd hit all the different college fairs that were hosted by differing entities that provided, as I'm sure many of you know, upcoming seniors with an opportunity to see what schools were out there, what they provided, and most importantly for all parents, what it cost, right? What it cost. And I loved the fall. I loved the college fairs and getting to know my competition because I was a salesman. That was my job. And as a smaller liberal arts college, Washita Baptist University, which is where I studied, we just couldn't compete with schools like the University of Arkansas or Arkansas State. But we had a host of similar schools who shared our unique size and family feel. And one of those schools was actually located in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Baptist University, which we refer to pejoratively as the other 
OBU. And Oklahoma Baptist wasn't a bad school. I mean, it was a good school. And being of a similar size and educational emphasis, we found ourselves often fishing in the same pond for possible students. And so in the fall, the first year I was there, after they invaded Arkansas, I was sent to infiltrate the enemy stronghold and to try and secure as many students as I could from Oklahoma, which I did. But when I was done, let me tell you, I was so glad to get out of that state. I mean, in my opinion, Oklahoma Baptist University had little to offer outside of their institution. The state, the state was just so drab. I mean, there was, there was nothing to Oklahoma but miles and miles of grass, if, if that's what you're after. I was unimpressed with the state as a, as a whole. And as soon as I was able, I was ready to get back in my car and head back to see my new bride. And on the way, my impressions of the state only deteriorated thanks to all of the trucking traffic, no offense, Ed, that clogged the interstate. I mean, all through the night, I was set upon by these monster 18-wheelers whose lights made it almost impossible to see. And they were tailgating me, hoping to get wherever they desired to go much more quickly than I. It was so frustrating. Now, eventually I decided I'm just going to put some distance between myself and these trucks. And I was enjoying a brief respite when all of a sudden my rearview mirror was once again flooded by lights, only this time they were red and blue and they were flashing. You know, it. when I looked down at my speedometer, I realized why I had managed to get the distance that I had between those trucks and myself and why those lights that were now flashing were so in my rearview mirror. And I was totally freaked out. Now, I had no reason to be, I know, but having grown up in a country where the, the police had, had a bit of a different feel to them than they do here, when that trooper made his way to my vehicle, I was, in, I was incredibly intimidated. And I'm sure it showed because as he came up and inquired as to my destination, you know, my haste as to get there, I, I responded just as I'd been trained. My parents had trained me well with politeness and great deference. I explained that I, I was simply trying to get home to my brand new bride. I was getting away from those mean old truckers, sir, and, and I just wanted to get home alive. He said little. He took my documents. Short time later, he returned. I think he had a smirk on his face. He simply urged me to drive more cautiously, or you might not make it home to your sweet wife. I received no ticket, just a verbal caution. That was it. Now, after that officer drove away and my legs stopped shaking so that I could actually control the pedals of the vehicle, I followed, but at a speed far below the driver's required limit. And in that moment, such a tangible sense of relief. I think I sang the whole way home. Have you ever experienced that kind of relief? You know, a moment where your entire body, like Tabitha's holding those books, your entire body is marked by the emotion, not just your mind, and you can't, you can't help but just break out in thanksgiving. Well, this is the sensation only to an infinite degree that I believe is being described in that psalm that Elena read for us earlier. The articulation of such an experience as David gives thanks to God for his great salvation. And church, I believe that we should all, we should all be able to relate to the emotions described in this song. For David's experience has been our own. We, who are Christ's followers. And this morning, I'd like for us to each be reminded of just how great is our salvation. So that we might share, once again, in that sense of relief, but also in the response that follows of thanksgiving. And so with that said, would you open your Bibles, if they're not already open, to Psalm 30? 
to Psalm 30. And as you're doing so, let me just attempt to set this song in context. Because as one commentator observes, to a greater degree than is usually the case, the interpretation of this psalm depends upon determining its occasion. To this end, in the words that introduce this psalm, that's those that precede verse 1. If you have an NIV, you'll see them there. We're told that Psalm 30 is a song for the dedication of the temple and that it's a psalm of David. Now, not all scholars believe that the information contained in this title is true. However, I believe since the earliest manuscripts bear this introduction, and as we'll see the texts that describe the circumstances, possible circumstances from which this song arose, share specific facts and vocabulary, I believe this introduction is accurate. I believe that David wrote this song, and he did so on the occasion of the temple's dedication. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, then right now your mind is likely screaming, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute, Andrew. David didn't actually dedicate the temple. He never even built it. That was a task entrusted to his son and successor who? Solomon. Exactly. The temple building was dedicated after David died. However, David had the desire, didn't he? He he set the ball rolling, so to speak, by beginning the preparations. And most importantly for our purposes here, he selected the site. And so if you keep a finger there in Psalm 30... Flip back with me for just a moment and find 1 Chronicles chapter 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And the very first verse in this chapter, 1 Chronicles 22 verse 1, concludes a strange story that's recounted in, in detail in chapter 21. And it's in which David decides to count the fighting men of Israel. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this peculiar story. It's also recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and it's the event in which David desires to revel in Israel's strength rather than resting in God's protection and provision. The king holds a census of all the military-aged men so that he might glory in the strength of his. That's the king's guardianship over the people. But no sooner has he done so than David realizes he has grossly offended the God of the universe. And so he, 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 he repents And he begs for the Lord to take away, he writes, the guilt of your servant. At which point, God instructs the prophet Gad to provide David with three options in response to his request. And this is interesting. Gad informs David that the Lord says, I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. And the options are these. Number one, three years of famine. Number two, three months of being swept away before your enemies. And then finally, three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Can you imagine being faced with such a decision? Not a one of these options impacts only you, the one who made the sinful decision in the first place. That's a whole different sermon, but for our purposes today, David goes with option three, because, and I love this, he says, I am in deep distress. I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is very great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. Isn't that powerful? And how true. So God, per David's decision, decimates Israel. 
for three days. The angel's work is reminiscent of that which we saw together when we studied Egypt and prior to Israel's exodus. And in this case here, 1 Chronicles 21, 70,000 people die. But as the angel of the Lord is headed towards Jerusalem, the Lord relents. And at the point that he does so, we discover David and the elders are dressed in sackcloth, which is a point that we see referenced in Psalm 30. David and the elders are dressed in sackcloth, and he begs for God to turn his anger away and, and, and away from the people, at which point God directs David to build an altar on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, which was the location of the angel when God stayed his judgment. And David obeys. He builds this altar, and we're told that the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And then we get to verse 1 there in chapter 22, which reads, the house of the Lord, this is David speaking, the house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the burnt offering, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, the word house there is key for us this morning because it's the same term in the original language of the Old Testament as that which we encounter in the introduction to Psalm 30, where there it's translated as what? House. House. So what I believe, along with others, is that the occasion for Psalm 30 was the consecration or the dedication of the temple's site, not its actual structure. And thus, David wrote the song that we're about to examine together following three days of horrific suffering because of his sin. This is the backdrop that I believe to David's psalm. This is what is behind David's writing of this psalm, which begins with exaltation for salvation. Exaltation for salvation. David's opening line declares, I will exalt you, O Lord, where to exalt or to extol, if you have an ESV translation, it means to, to raise up, to, to lift up, or to make high above. In other words, if you were with us last week, we saw together, David here is magnifying the Lord. He's not taking something that's small and trying to make it visible. No, rather, he's taking something that's huge, the God of the universe, and he's trying to bring it into focus. He's, he's promising here to set before the people the Lord himself, and he's trying to place him before others as well in his rightful place, which David had not done when he decided to hold the census. In that moment, David's heart had exalted his own glory. In, in that moment, in his counting of the size of Israel's military, David was exalting in his accomplishments as king. He was touting his title. He was pointing out his power as reflected by his people. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with this. I am, I mean, you can ask my wife, I am so prone, so prone to lift up my own accomplishments, to extol my own abilities, to exalt my own name. I, I, I like to survey my kingdom, and like David, I like to be reminded of just how awesome I am. So how do I pat myself on the back? Well, I believe we live in a culture that shares much in common with David's Israel. We live in a culture that's driven by metrics, don't we? So I count something. I measure something. I count attendance or tithes, baptism, missions participation. You name it, we can count it. But church, these things display nothing more than did David's senses. The numbers don't reflect dependence upon the one who actually brought it all to pass, do they? So as a question this morning, what do you count? What do you count? Is it money made? 
classes passed, students taught, jobs completed, miles driven, patients saved. David sings about placing God in his rightful place. And then in light of all that has happened, keeping in mind the context, he provides three reasons why, with the first being deliverance from opposition. Deliverance from opposition. David sings, I will exalt you, O Lord. Why? For you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. David sings about God's deliverance from opposition, where the enemies to which he's referring, they may have been those referenced in option two of God's judgment. The enemies who surrounded Israel's borders, such as the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites. It could also be that David was referring to those within his borders, even inside his own house who opposed him. If you recall from David's life in kingship, he faced a great deal of internal turmoil with his son Absalom trying to overthrow him and the sons of Zeruah like Joab, who interestingly enough in this setting opposed the census from the very beginning. And so having come under conviction of his sin, David realizes his failure and how this failure provides his enemies with opportunities to gloat, with, with fodder, if you will, for their cannons. However, God's great grace in salvation has lifted him, he sings, lifted him out of the depths. And this phrase he uses here, it pictures a well where there's a bucket being drawn up by a rope. And thus for David, God's staying of his righteous judgment, his hand of righteous judgment, was as the drawing up of a bucket from a well of despair. And this gracious act spared David from his enemy's abuse. Now friends, I would imagine this morning we can all envision the imagery that David is appealing to here, along with the sense of relief that's referenced. I remember when I was in high school, my mom and dad had gone away for something, and I don't remember now what it was, but my brothers and I were spent to, sent to spend the week with friends who had sons our age, and we had an absolute blast, as you can imagine. We played all manner of games. Our favorite, and I may have discussed this before, was golf in the backyard. It was awesome. We all participated. Now, not all hit the ball, some of the younger ones were obstacles and targets around which we played, but we all played. Despite the cautions that are issued by our hostess, we were certain nothing could happen. Well, my Auntie Jenny had left for some time. I can't remember what it was, but while we were playing, in her absence, I broke a window. And, and we said it had, couldn't be done, but it was, and it was me who, in fact, broke it. And I felt terrible because she'd warned us as she left, this prophetess, that this would be the case. And yet we'd insisted that it couldn't. And seeing that it was me, all my accomplices, as you can only imagine, were gloating as to the response that would ensue upon her return. And I felt like I was in a well. And I was sinking with all my golfing buddies gleefully watching me sink into this well. And have you ever felt that way? Now maybe your circumstances haven't been as inconsequential as a broken window. Maybe they've regarded a broken marriage, a failed job, a lost friendship, but as you dwelt on your failure, a reality that you never believed possible, you felt as if you were drowning. And while all your opponents took delight in your demise, the beauty of God's grace in salvation is, as David sings, it frees us from our enemies' judgments. It frees us from their judgments. Now let me point out, based on the context that we established earlier, God's deliverance did not remove the consequences of David's actions, did it? 
Meaning because of David's sin, 70,000 people still died. And their families were directly affected. So God's grace did not remove the pain tied to his sin, David's sin. But it did remove David's guilt. And friends, in the same way, when we experience God's saving grace, our guilt is gone. We sing, my chains are what? Gone. I've been set free. Our, our enemies no longer gloat because our God has established our freedom. However, that doesn't mean that our lives will be free from frustration or the effects resulting from our sinful decisions. Our, our enemies may still attempt to discourage us, but their words will have no weight. Why? Because our God has removed our guilt. He's removed the stain of our sin. David sings because of God's deliverance from his opponents. And the second reason he exalts the Lord is because he answers prayer. God answers prayer. Verse 2, David continues, O Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. In this line, I believe David is singing of his sin as the source of the plague that God sent in that judgment for, sin, for his making the census. I believe he realized that the disease was his doing. And had he not pridefully spited the Lord and sought his own glory, then none of this would have happened. And thus David realized that the disease which struck the 70,000 members of the community over which he had been entrusted with leadership, that disease had afflicted him. It had consumed his soul and he, the king, needed healing. And so he cried out to the Lord for help and by God's grace, he was healed. He was healed. Now, I know that I've shared with you before my time of study in Morocco. Before I was a sophomore in college, I had a chance to study at the Al-Akhawain University in Afrain, Morocco. And I was a student there, and I learned a great deal during my four or five months there. And I also found myself constantly battling illness. It was like every week I was sick, and my intestines were constantly irritated. Well, come my end of my time in North Africa, I met my parents in southern Africa, and they promptly put, promptly put me through a barrage of tests to try and figure out what was going on with my system. And I remember wondering throughout the course of the semester and in those tests what it might be. And as you can imagine, as we go through tests, our minds run to all manner of places, don't they? I wondered what it might be. And I remember getting the results and that feeling that followed the news that I wasn't going to die and that my system was, in fact, fine. I, it was a relief unimaginable relief. And I would imagine this morning that some of you can relate to that same, it's almost a tangible weight that's lifted. When you get the news back, your test results are, are negative or whatever. In that moment, I believe that, that you feel just as David describes in this song. And while he may, he may not have been physically ill, David knew he was spiritually diseased. And friends, this is rally, reality that we all face. We are all, as David was, diseased by sin. Not a one of us seeks God's glory. We don't care for God's ways or listen to his word. We are sin sick such that we do what we do for our own ends. We seek our good without regard for the impact such efforts will have on others. Even when we're chastened by those older and wiser, our minds are clouded by the lust for personal accomplishment. My life's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do and need to do to get what I want so that I can be satisfied. And this brokenness marks the lives of everyone born on earth. And apart from God's grace, it will end in eternal suffering. But 
as David sings. God hears and he heals when we cry out to him for help. David knew this help. And he experienced it when covered in sackcloth, surrounded by all of his elders, wailing for mercy. God stayed the angel's sword. And so David exalted the Lord, for he hears and he hears and heals. David delivered. God delivers from opposition. He answers prayer. And then a third reason I believe that David exalts the Lord is that he rescues from death. He rescues us from death. Verse 3, we read, O Lord my God, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. So, surrounded by the cries of mourners, and himself clothed in sackcloth, David felt himself as good as gone. In fact, if you were to look in chapter 21 of Chronicles in verse 16, David there is described as looking up and actually seeing the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. David knew he was next because he was the cause of the whole outbreak. And it seemed only just that he faced the sentence, right? David even said to the Lord these words, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I'm the one who's sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have, what have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family. But don't let this plague continue to affect my people. Let this plague away from your people. David accepted responsibility for his sin, and so he knew what was coming. He knew what sin's wage was, death. Only it didn't come, did it? Instead, God instructed him to build an altar, a place of worship, a place where God might meet with his creation and atone for their sin. And friends, again, we are all as David was, for we all face the reality of death, don't we? And for some, this reality appears distant, uncertain even. For others, it looms far larger. It may even appear imminent regardless The truth that I believe gives voice to David's song is that God rescues us from it. And this isn't a rescue merely from the physical as was David's case, but far more significantly, the rescue from the spiritual death that impacts every single one of us. David realized that God alone saved. He alone gave life and sustained life. Why? Because he alone is life. David cried out to the Lord and he was saved. The question, have you experienced the salvation of which David sings? If you haven't, then I would pray that you would do as David did throughout this psalm and that you would call out to the Lord. David acknowledged his sin, that he had disobeyed God, sought his own glory rather than that of God's. David confessed his sin and he repented. He didn't excuse his decisions. He didn't blame others for his choices. He recognized that he was broken, he was the problem, and that he couldn't fix it. David threw himself at the feet of God for he, as he declared, God's mercy is very great. David discovered the glorious truth that I hope you know. God rescues us from death. And David was directed to build this altar upon which to sacrifice to the Lord. Guys, if you're here today and you've never asked God for his mercy, received his grace, and by faith believed that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is God's son born of a virgin like us in every way and yet without sin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, but three days later he rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If you have never trusted Christ, 
to save you from death. And I pray that you would do that today. And, and, and this isn't a personal decision as it is so often touted and that you can keep it to yourself. No, this is an experience such as we've been describing from the very beginning and referencing throughout. This is an emotion that is so tangible with relief and joy. You cannot contain it. This is a public celebration of new life, of, of healing, of resurrection, and of hope. Can you sing with David this song of exaltation for salvation? And if you can, then I want you to hear a second call that's in David's psalm here. And that is an exhortation to celebration. An exhortation to celebration. I believe that this focus begins for us in verse 4 where David writes, Sing to the Lord, you saints of His praise, His holy name, for His anger lasts only a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Church, here David directs us Emmanuel, to sing, we saints, we grace saved by faith in Christ Jesus, men and women. David exhorts us to celebrate or to praise, depending on your translation, or give thanks to his holy name for several reasons. The first of which is because his anger lasts only a moment. In other words, God's antagonism towards sin is very real. He isn't a God who's only soft and cuddly and who loves and wants us all to get our own way. No, God is just, and he cannot tolerate sin. Because if he could tolerate sin, then we'd have to excise the whole first half of this song. No, there can be no fear of death if God can save, but he's never angry. And yet, as the Bible makes clear, God hates sin. God hates sin so much that he was willing to die to destroy its power over his people. And so we sing in celebration that God's anger lasts only a moment, for who could stand before his righteous wrath? We also sing because his favor lasts a lifetime. John tells us in his letter, God is love, and he's purposed to demonstrate his love to his people for eternity, and therefore, while he does display his anger at sin, he's made provision so that his people will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's life in his presence, enjoying his favor forever. So while I think David was singing about the length of one's life in the physical sense here, in this song's original celebration, I think he's also describing the spiritual reality of God's loving favor as it's going to be experienced by all who are his. So can you sing this song this morning? Can you celebrate, can you appreciate what God has done for you in this work on the cross? Or is God's anger still too fearful a thought and one without promise of any concrete assurance of relief? So David calls us to celebrate the brevity of God's anger, the longevity of his relief, as well as the totality of his transformation. The totality of his transformation. The final phrase of verse 5 reads, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And if you skip down to verse 11, then I believe you see this same truth, again captured by David as he sings, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with what? Joy. 
that my heart may sing to you and not be what? Silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. So whether it be weeping to rejoicing, wailing to dancing, the sackcloth of mourning to robes of joy, or the silence of despair to songs of celebration, David sings, I believe, of the totality of God's gracious life transformation. Church, when God saves, he doesn't simply save the mind. The salvation that we sing about isn't a mental construct that, that, that provides us with clarity and perspective as we face an uncertain future. Nor is it merely therapeutic emotions that help to distract us from life's reality of pain. No, the salvation that God provides us in Christ Jesus transforms us so completely that our circumstances, which, don't miss this, will still cause us pain. Your life circumstances will still cause you pain. Make us weep. Make us cry out for mercy as David does. They will only last for the moment that we call night. Because in the morning, we'll see the glory of the sun. That's S-O-N. And be reminded of his mercy. We'll be filled with his joy. Led to dance and to sing and to give thanks to him forever. I pray this morning, that if your life has recently felt like a night marked by weeping, that you've been reminded of the reality that days, which always follow nights, days bring rejoicing. And this celebration is based not on the fact that you can work a better attitude towards the reality that you face. No. This celebration is based on the fact that our God saves, has saved, and he will save us unto eternity where we will live with him. Can you claim that reality this morning as your own? And if you can, 